Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we're going to have the battle of accents here. You know, we got the British accent. We got the Spanglish, you know, the Spanish accent, you know, that I have. But I think that we're definitely going to enjoy our guest today. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, exiting. I mean, you name it. But uh, but again, I don't want to make all of you wait any longer. Let's welcome our guest today, Greg Marsh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. So originally born in London, you know, the city where it always rains. So how was life growing up there? There's a famous, infamous medieval French document where uh, Frenchmen who committed truly heinous acts, worse even than, than being punished by murder, were banished to the land of eternal rain. They were sent over the channel for permanent exile. So yes, London is a rainy place. But uh, <laughs> what it makes up for with bad weather in uh, in sort of uh, as a technology and entrepreneurship hub, you know, we can we can all attest, right? And for me, look, it's my home. So I grew up here. I'm one of the few uh, who stayed here. Uh, thought on a couple of occasions, I thought about going west coast for a period of time. I thought about going east coast US for a period of time. We even flirted with moving to Berlin after I sold my last business. But I keep coming back here um, because I think it's a very rare and unusual combination of things. It's an entrepreneur, right? Where you have this one location unipolar uh, city. You've got a political center, an economic center, a cultural center, uh, as well as being a large population and capital center. And it's not that many cities which can claim all of those, all of those hats at once. Now, in your case, you know, very interesting. You went to Cambridge. I mean, obviously, in your resume, you got the biggest universities, Cambridge, Harvard. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. But, but why philosophy? You know, why did you go and, and study philosophy? I've been perennially indecisive. I've, I've never figured out what I want to do when I grow up. My sister is a doctor. At about the age of 10, she announced I want to be a doctor. And then she goes and becomes a doctor. She did great. Right? I'm so pleased for her. I've always been very envious of people who've known what they wanted to do. And I felt like for a lot of my early career, possibly even my later career, I made decisions that kept my options open. Uh, and so part of my career choice, my degree choice was around not really knowing what I wanted to do. I sometimes think I probably would have been happier if I just stayed with my first love, which was computers. I used to code as a kid and wrote computer games in my bedroom and loved it. Um, but I, for whatever reason, got distracted. You know, the British education system, unfortunately, one of its problems is it tends to, it tends to sing a song, siren song about the humanities, and it drags us into abstraction rather than keeping us applied. Um, so yeah, I ended up reading philosophy. At least it was more a more analytical discipline. There was a lot of logic in there and some and some sort of hard semi-math problems. But uh, yeah, I felt like most of the rest of my career, I've been I've been sc scrapping to get back into the more worldly, more prag pragmatic stuff. And you know, it's interesting, you know, how when you think about the philosophy, you know, angle of things, you know, which is really discovering the why of things. You know, how do you tie that to you know to becoming an entrepreneur later on, which is discovering, you know, obviously really the the why of problems, but then, you know, figuring out the solutions. I guess you're, in your case, the first experience into the venture world was when you landed in Apex, when they had their venture practice. So that's 
that's an interesting place to land after graduating from philosophy. So how do you land there? And what was that experience with the venture world for the first time? What the quintessence of the study of philosophy is that it's a generative discipline. You are staying at the at the abstract creative end of thought, right? You're before thoughts become disciplined enough and routinized and rigorous enough to become functionally specialized, at which point they become history or they become maths or they become engineering. And I think something similar applied about, you know, why I've been continuously resistant to specializing in my career as well, right? I mean, entrepreneurship is a generative discipline. You are resistant to specializing. As the chief executive of a startup, you're kind of a bit of everything. And the moment you get too dragged into one bit of detail, you figure out, right, there's someone who's way better at this than I am. I need to hire them to replace myself. And in a sense, you're constantly replacing yourself and in, in that generative role. Look, venture capital, I, I, I didn't know quite that I wanted to run businesses. I didn't have the confidence to be able to start them. Again, you, you know, the UK is getting better at in promoting and encouraging entrepreneurship as a legitimate business career. But I think we, we, we have a long way to go still for that to be a default behavior pattern. And certainly as the son of two lawyers, uh, where the kind of professional discipline was the expectation that the, the norm for me was I would have gone into a professional career. Investing represented this interesting interstice between that professionalized competence and something that was close to generative work and close to technology, which has always been my first love. So that was what attracted me to it. I was looking for a way to kind of combine those interests in one place. And, it, you know, it's fun, right? I mean, investing in other people's money is, is a kick. It's really, it's really intellectually rich and enjoyable. You get to be very lazy and other people do all the hard work. If you're in a good shop, I mean, Apex for a period of time later in my career, Index Ventures, really outstanding people you get to work with in these in these places. And you get to sit in the middle of the, the solar system and these crazy smart entrepreneurs revolve around you. And that is an incredible luxury. Um, I think it can also breed, I don't want to be disparaging about uh, investors. You know, some of my best friends are investors, but I think it can also breed a kind of arrogance and a complacency. I'm you know, I, I think I think the best investors are great investors because they know they're not operators, actually. And I think the best operators um, at some level know they couldn't really be investors because they need they need to have their hands there. They need to grab it and play with it and, and own it and build it and create and do that in a collaborative way. So as time's gone on, I think I've become more accepting of the person I actually am. But certainly at the outset of my career, I was really quite indecisive about whether I wanted to invest or whether I wanted to operate. And in your case, you also did the reverse commute because you went from investing to becoming an entrepreneur. I mean, you were at APAC, then you did the Harvard Business School, then you returned to Index. So I guess, you know, while you were on the other side of the table as an investor, what were the three key traits that you saw on founders that deserved the money and that could perhaps, you know, have the potential of building something great from those that you know, still needed a little bit more to learn before, you know, they were fundable ready. It is about teams, about individuals and teams. Usually it's teams, right? The research literature is pretty clear that founding teams are uh, have both a lower base and a higher overall return. Um, so, so what are the qualities that predict success in successful entrepreneurs? Unfortunately, like the literature on this one, I mean, this is my own experience. Yeah, I'd, love to, I'd love to have a great searing insight. The data is really bad on this. So if you if you regress back, you ask. You, there's a bunch of work from former HBS colleagues of mine did on this. Um, you you look at the scores 
that venture partners gave founding teams when they made the decision to finance a Series A deal. And then you, you put that on one axis. The other axis, you put eventual outcome on an ROI basis or a you know, cash on cash basis. And you'd expect to see some correlation. You'd expect the teams that were appraised as the best on the way in were also the ones that delivered the best returns. Uh-uh. It's a mess. There's an extremely low correlation between investor assessment of founding team quality and overall investment outcome, above a hygiene threshold of founding team quality. But what this tells you at some level is there's an enormous amount of luck, an enormous amount of path-dependent outcome uh, uh, in, in, in venture investing. So you, you absolutely, you want to make sure you're backing smart people and people who are likely to be able to course correct on the early stages of their journey. But it is a huge, there's a huge amount of uncertainty. And any investor who says that they're just better at picking the smartest people is probably smoking something. Um, what I can say, and I say quite confidently, is that the thing I got from those interactions with founders at, at, during my index venture stint, so I was there like 2008 through, uh, at, at 2005 through 2009. And through that, through that four-year period, what, what, I, what I took from it was, was two things. The first is how widely different founders can be from one another and still be successful. There is not one dominant behavior pattern or personality type or characteristic. Some are very driven, they're all driven people. Some are very, you know, uh, uh, narrow people. Some are very broad people. Some are, you know, very, very difficult to work with. Some are very easy and accommodating. There's not one pattern. Um, they're all really smart. They work incredibly hard. They're all obsessed with their business. Um, they've all figured out a thing. They've got a thing going on. By the time you get through the door at a tier one fund, you've got something going on. Um, but the second thing I think it was it was it was about me getting less. At some level, I was asking myself again and again. One of the recognitions or acceptances I have about my own development as a as an entrepreneur was it was me asking myself when I met these people, could I do that? And in some cases, uh, probably not. Right. Some of the folks I interacted with. I mean, we just invested in Skype when I joined the Index Ventures team. I can, you can pay yourself to Nicholas and, and, and Yanis, and you're like, well, heck no. I mean, that, they're obviously in a, an extremely high, high, high altitude, those guys. Um, but a lot of the founders we backed, right? Yeah, maybe I could do that. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'd back myself to take that risk. Maybe I'd back myself to give that a go. Uh, and I think at some level, accepting that I was never going to be able to let go of that until I had tried to climb that mountain myself, until I had taken the risk and tried to play the game, I would never let myself off the hook. When I first took the leap in 2009 to start my own business, One Fine State, a lot of what went on in my head was, look, even if this goes wrong, and I kind of expected at some level it would, even if this goes wrong, at the very least, I will be humbled and I will be a better investor as a result. Right? I'll go back, tail between my legs to the guys at Index and say, please give me my job back. And I'm now qualified to invest your money in other people's businesses because I now know just how hard it is and how, how, how much good luck it requires. But you're, you're, you were already seeing that. I mean, you were already seeing it at, at Index and what you saw, you know, at Apex and perhaps, you know, other friends that you had at HBS that went out, you know, and started their own companies after the, the master's program. You saw how hard it was. So, I mean, it sounds like you wanted to, to harm yourself. I mean, why did you think, you know, after seeing all those founders, seeing all the struggles that they were going after, you know, like you had this super comfortable job, you know, the typical, you know, investor in a VC, they are able to secure a job because they were successful as a founder in the past. I mean, it's not easy to secure a VC job, especially, you know, in one of the best firms in the world, like Index. Why? Why did you decide to make that shift? 
Yeah, I think I think it's I think at some level it's a bug, not a feature. I think the entrepreneurial spirit in this regard, it, in a way, I often advise people, but like you say, of acting, right? If you could do something else and be happy, do something else. Um, in my case, it, I mean, I can only talk about my own experience of this. In my case, I think it's a recognition of my need for that level of kind of extreme stimulation and challenge. It's a, 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 pr a pretty pathological aversion to authority. I don't cope well with authority, even well behaved and self-disciplined and good and well and, and, and sort of well-managed authority. Um, I think the third thing is an intense desire to do work that is creative work. Look, investing is a tremendously fun job. As it's intellectually varied, you have a tremendous degree of leverage. You get rich slowly. All of those good things. It is not terribly creative work. And it is not terribly collaborative work. Um, and what I most enjoyed in my pre-index experience at GFX and then my post-index experience during the scaling phase of One Point Stay was I enjoyed building something, creating something out of nothing, out of whole cloth. And that intense, relentless problem solving that you have to do to achieve that on the product side, on the organization design side, on the commercial problem solving side, right? But also doing that with a team of people. I mean, I, I, and I... I've, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but I've gone back in as an entrepreneur now in a new startup 18 months ago and very explicitly and deliberately chose again to do that with co-founders. So like, I'm not saying that investing is necessarily solitary, but the, as you become senior as an investor, you do an awful lot of your work on your own. Uh, and, and I don't want to work on my own. I'm, I get bored of myself. I want to be stimulated by the people. I want that challenge. I want to work. I want to create something that has impact on the world with other people. Um, but unfortunately, and as I said, it's a bug, not a feature. I don't think I'm well suited to working for others. Uh, and so accepting some of those things about myself, kind of you end up, you know, I, I'm going to have to do this. If I don't do this or I don't try and fail to do this and prove that I can't do this, I'm never going to respect myself. And I think it was that as much as anything else in 2009 that got me off my ass to go start One Fine Stay. Well, how, how did One Fine Stay come to mind? You know, because obviously uh, problems, you know, and ideas, they take some time, you know, to, to, to incubate. But at what point do you realize this is it? I got to really go after this one. I nearly left twice before. Uh, there were two other businesses that almost, that almost got me there. Uh, at the end of 2008, just before the collapse of Lehman Brothers, I'd got as far as a founding team, a business plan, like early product staff. We, I was paying a guy to work in, you know, into evenings and weekends and so on. And then the Lehman collapse happened and that Sequoia pitch deck went around saying, RIP, good times. And I realized that that particular business, I shan't bore your listeners with the details of it, but that particular business was not viable in a capital scarce environment, right? 2007 was a capital rich environment. 2008, 2008 was a capital scarce environment. And as a first time out entrepreneur, I was not going to be able to raise $10 million cold to be able to build the business that that business would have required it. So at the start of 2009, I licked my wounds and I made a list and my list was kind of, it was an analytic, there's a criteria sheet of like, what are the minimum sufficient, necessary and sufficient conditions of a business model in the design inception phase of a business model that have to be true in order for me to have conviction about going to start. Given I knew on paper the chances of success were low, I thought there was a lot of things that could go wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And I had a various, I had a set of rules. Like one was a counterfactual with London. If this is a bit, must be a business that if you could choose to start it anywhere, you would choose to start it in London. Two, a business that was intense, that used technology intensively, 
but was not a technology business in the sense that I am not, I enjoy technology, but I'm not a deep technologist. And I knew that about myself. Three, a business which did not require capital to get to product market validation. Again, post Lehman, there was not likely to be an abundance of capital, et cetera. It's about sort of five or six of these rules. And so I went around, essentially, I sort of sat at my desk looking at other people's business plans and meeting entrepreneurs, kind of with these set of thoughts in the back of my head. And one morning on the way to work, I had, I suppose, an epiphany. And I was literally looking at these empty buildings in the center of Mayfair and thinking, how on a set, all these places are empty all of the time. This is crazy. This is the most expensive and prime real estate in the world. How come it's empty? And of course, the simple insight is it's empty because those who can travel, travel. A lot of this is sort of parked capital. There is a market failure here. And then the thought occurred to me, I wonder what service would need to exist in order that folks who have really nice houses like these would make them available for short periods of time to visitors. And that thought kind of got stuck in my head. And it went round and round and round my head over the next few days. And I had this trip to Pisa. And as a guest in a terrible airport hotel, but I had a terrible accommodation experience. So I'm walking through the city one night thinking, hang on a sec, this is what I want. I want to stay in that apartment there in the center of town. I don't want to be staying at this miserable airport hotel. How can we fix this market failure? Now, I'd read about uh, Airbnb and went on my own research. In fact, I tried to meet the Airbnb guys with an Index Ventures hat on, though they just raised capital from Sequoia at the time. So I was kind of aware that there were pure play market models in, in the ether, though it was way early in that business's journey and development. I also had a sense that the last thing you wanted to do was compete with a pure play marketplace that was based in San Francisco if you were building that business in London. You're back to, if you could start this business anywhere, you would choose to start it in London. What must be true of the business model for that to be the case? A pure play model is unlikely to succeed in London, right? I mean, you're going to be competing with one hand tied behind your back against entrepreneurs in, in the Valley, right? Where they've just got a much greater density at the time, particularly than, even more so than today, a much greater density of relevant product talent and marketing talent. So what was intriguing about One Fine Stay was it is a hybrid model. It requires an intense service operation component. One Fine, One Fine Stay looks from the outside like a curated Airbnb, the inside of the business is all about operations and services. When we sold the business seven years later, we had 700 people in the company. And it's an intensely complex operating business. And you also had raised quite a, big, a bit of money too. I mean, you had raised what, over 80 million bucks? Yeah, we raised, we raised a bunch of money and we hired a bunch of people. But a lot of those people were not doing product engineering roles. A lot of those people, we had a product engineering team, the largest team in the business. But we also had a team of drivers. We had folks doing linen. We had folks doing warehouse management. We had folks doing hospitality and service management, right? The only way you can maintain a high level of service quality on the guest-facing side or a high level of property management quality on the homeowner-facing side there were not third-party service providers in the markets where we operated that could deliver that service. We had to build those service functions ourselves. Right? So One Fine Stay was from the very beginning, at inception and at conceptualization phase, a massively hybrid business. It was an operating, it was a luxury hospitality and operations business with this curated marketplace over the top. And so very first thinking about it, it's like this is an unbelievably complex business to engineer and build. It's, it's multifunctional. You have to be good at a lot of different things to do this. I knew I couldn't do that on my own. I didn't want to do it on my own. And so a lot of the early journey, what held me up from when I became obsessed with this, what got me, what stopped me from jumping immediately was the need to find co-founders who could help me on that journey. And it was actually when I found this great technologist uh, who has, whose first business was a Y Combinator startup hadn't worked out, and I dragged him back to London. But it was actually when my former colleague, Demetrius, opted in 
who's a, a, a sort of saner and wiser individual like me, than me. He's about sort of eight years older than me and had a lot more management experience than I did. It was when he said, I think there's something here, let's, let's build it together, that I felt like, okay, this is crazy. It's going to be unbelievably difficult, but I'd kill myself if I didn't try. And so, heck, we tried. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. You guys raised quite a little bit of money. I mean, for this, I mean, over 80 million bucks. Uh, you also had as investor index ventures. So I'm sure it was not that hard to to get them on board no? because they already knew you. But you really knew, you know, the investment side of things. So why did you choose the investors that you chose to write, you know, along, you know, in this journey with you? I, I was I was actually I mean, you say index needs to get involved. <laughs> I remember when I when I said I was leaving, uh, Danny Reimer sort of pulled me to one side and hey, Greg, hey, listen, you know, if you want to have somewhere to sit while you're working on the business, use our offices. And I very expressly said, thanks, but that, that's cool. It's okay. I very deliberately distanced myself from the firm for the first nine months or so of my journey as an entrepreneur. I think in part because I didn't want this to feel like an index venture shop deal. If I'd done that, A, I was anxious I could have got screwed on terms, but B, I was worried that if this was an index house deal, that if index didn't do it, I was screwed. There was always going to be a bit of a risk of that for precisely the reason you say. There's like an adverse signaling risk if you leave a tier one fund and the fund doesn't follow. Hmm. But I thought my best chances of having a, a, a decent leverage at a Series A stage and also my best chance of having a fallback plan if that doesn't work out is going to be to have distance from index. So I maintained distance from index for nearly a year. And it was after we had sort of early traction and sort of a sharp growth trajectory that, uh, and actually after I had term sheets from a couple other funds, that at that stage, I sort of opened the conversation again with the index guys, and they made a decision within two hours and said, let's do this. And so it was, I, I, look, I, yes, I was happy to take their money. Clearly, it's a, fun, it's a firm I know and have a lot of respect for. And in the end, it was, um, I would also say that I really wanted an entrepreneur on the board. And so uh, uh, it was Robin Klein at Index who ended up taking the board seat before Robin and Saul split out uh, to build Local Globe uh, as an independent fund. 
Uh, so Robin was on our board for, for for the first several years as as the index ventures lead. And again, as someone who was on this entrepreneurial journey, I felt like having a serial entrepreneur was 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 extremely attractive to me. And I still feel, you know, at an early stage with a very operationally complex business, uh, you know, I, I would always advise an entrepreneur to be to be very to be very enthusiastic about getting getting uh, serial entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs on your board if you can. Yeah, I mean, that, that background operational expertise is key. But I guess uh, in your case, you know, I'm sure that the listeners are going to love, you know, listening about the $250 million acquisition. I mean, first business, first exit, you know, first success. I mean, that's pretty amazing. So at what point do you guys realize, you know, it's time to pursue an acquisition? And how did that happen? Walk us through that. One Way Stay is a fascinating business. As I've alluded to, it is a, fun, it is a deceptively difficult and complex business to operate. Um, and after, I guess it must've been five, five and a half, six years at, at, at the pointy end, I was physically and psychologically quite fatigued by it. Um, I was also finding that the, <laughs> we were at an inflection point in the company's development. We were either going to have to raise a lot of money. Uh, I mean, a couple hundred million plus and build a large kind of make a big commitment to building out a brand so that we could have more control over our demand and engagement with the demand side of the business. Or we were going to have to partner. And the partnership path, we we got to know the Airbnb guys a bit. We got to know a bunch of the big hotel groups. Um, I was on first name terms with a bunch of the big hotel group CEOs. And what was increasingly clear in conversation with them was that they were extremely interested in what we were doing because they knew that Airbnb was eating some of their lunch, at least. They knew that they couldn't compete directly with Airbnb and they didn't want to because they felt there was too much brand exposure doing this in an uncurated or unservice managed way. And so the attraction for them of the One Fine Stay partnership opportunity was that what One Fine Stay did was service managed. It was curated. They could stick their brand on it and they didn't worry about the risk of that. And so it was a very natural fit from a marketing and distribution perspective. I mean, the conversations we had initially with Hyatt and then we had them with a bunch of other the hotel majors and latterly Accor was that, look, you've got a bunch of folks who stay with you for work purposes in short-stay city center contexts, principally. They earn points. They want to spend their points for leisure travel. One Fine State is principally, not exclusively, but principally a leisure travel product. And so this is a very natural uh, opportunity for points redemption. And so there was a very clear sort of strategic synergy on the, on, on the demand side. Uh, they were very interested in what we were doing. We started talking partnership uh, from a distribution perspective. And of course, big companies say, well, can we own a bit of it? And the answer is, well, not really. You either have to own it or you don't own it. And then Sebastian Bazan was the first to tip over, who was the chief executive of Accor, into, okay, then let's own it. And then it was a, then it was a discussion. I say, by that stage, we had a, a fork in the road. Um, I look back on it, I think, yeah, could I have taken it? Could I have done another five years? Maybe, maybe if I had the psychological resilience at that stage. But it was a, it was a hard business to run at scale. Uh, and a lot of the thinking that's animated the design of my current business, Naus, has been like, make sure you design a business which can be operated at scale and can be scaled fast. Or don't play the venture capital game. You know, I got to know Nick Jones, who's just, Come, come off, a, 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 what is it, a 20-something year stint as the chief executive of Soho House Group. It has taken him like 20-something years to build that business, right? When you have these complex, 
multi-local service operations with luxury hospitality. These are very complex, difficult businesses to build. It takes time. And look who has financed that. It's not been technology venture capital firms who have a return horizon expectation, which isn't well aligned with that class of business. So I think that um, I think it was the right outcome. It was a respectable outcome for the folks involved. Everyone made some money. Uh, and um, you know, it's good to see it's good to see you know some of the early team get well rewarded for their hard work, and it's good to see it continue as a brand under Accor's ownership. So I mean, obviously, that's a, when you finish the uh, when you reach the finish line, and and everyone you know is able to do so you know with uh, with high flying colors. You know, it's a, an absolutely very fulfilling. Um, you know, I would say feeling for the founder, no, for everyone that really took the bet on you. I guess in your case, you know, after you know the, the this stint, you know, this 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 first rodeo, you you know basically took some time, you know, to do advisory stuff, government stuff. You know, you even you know were te- you you were even teaching at uh, Harvard. Why now? I mean, what? Why? I mean, at what point do you say, hey, you know, I think I'm I'm ready. I want I want to go at it again, and I want to go with this. Yeah, well, I'm clearly too young to retire. And I wasn't, plural's fun, but I wasn't enjoying it enough. I was finding it quite unfulfilling. I I was finding that um, the, uh, the, where things succeeded, it was usually because someone else was doing a great job. In my heart of hearts, I felt that. I mean, you can always claim credit for someone else's hard work. But in my heart of hearts, I was like, if if I invest in a company or I'm on a board and they're doing well, it's probably because, you know, the team is doing the right stuff. Where things are failing, there's almost nothing you can do as a board director, actually, right? You can wring your hands and you could fire the chief executive in theory. But in practice, we know how that ends usually in early stage companies. Um, so, I mean, I just wasn't enjoying that that sort of, uh, 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 actually, Robin Klein once said to me, my, my sometime one fine state board member, uh, he said, you know, being a board member is like being a grandparent. I thought it was very insightful. You have to be able to let go of it. You have to be able to leave it alone at weekends and, and leave it to the parents to make hard parenting decisions. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm, I'm not ready for that at this stage in my career yet. I mean, I think I have some value as a board member, but I, I, I still need to build stuff. There's still that, that, that desire in me. But the challenge then is, like, this, is a, this, is a, this is not a three-year journey. It's a 10-year journey. If things go well, it's longer. And so it's, you've got to build something you deeply believe in. And if I reflect on my One Fine Stay experience, what I love is I love the creativity. I love the brand building. I love the teamwork. I love the problem solving and the product work. And I liked the product. But I didn't ever fundamentally feel that the product was making the world a better place. And I, you know, I was finding myself doing government advisory work. I was doing charity work in a variety of different contexts. I was looking for a, a way of expressing my interests that included a, a powerful sense of social mission and social purpose and social impact. And I wasn't finding that in my day job. So I was having to do a portfolio of things to get that. And a lot of the design thinking that went into the NAUS model was, okay, how can, I, how can I live in one place? How can I do one thing that fulfills me both in terms of social impact, but also uh, building a business that I'm intensely proud of? And so a lot of the early work was not trying to build a double bottom line business or start a charity, but trying to design a business model, which if it were to succeed on its own terms as a profit-seeking enterprise, which it is, I mean, we're a B Corp, but it's still a profit-seeking enterprise. If it succeeds on its own terms, NAS will have, I strongly believe, a potent positive social externality. The nature of the problem we're trying to solve and how we're trying to solve it 
will lead to very significant real social benefit. And I think that means that radically simplifies my life. I don't have to be on the board of a charity. I don't have to worry about, you know, uh, having other sort of meaning and purpose. This is my meaning and my purpose. I, I do this. I have a family. Um, I do a little bit of teaching because it's nice to give back that way. But actually, I, this is something I want to build and I'm proud to build for the next decade. So then let's talk about that real, real quick then, you know, just so that the people that are listening get it. What ended up being the business model of Nows? How do you, make, how do you guys make money there? So now, very simply put, uh, now for your house, it will be a, an intelligent agent that makes all of the boring routine decisions about the stuff related to supplying services to your house. Who supplies your energy? Who supplies your broadband, your mobile phone telephony, your car insurance, your home insurance, your mortgage? All of these decisions, which added together represent probably 40% of the stuff that we spend money on as a household, this class of non-discretionary recurring expenditure. 40% of what we spend money on as a household is 40% of GDP. I mean, as a spend category, this is quite literally the largest spend category that there is. And what characterizes this category of spending is that we underinvest as householders time and effort in it because who supplies your energy has no effect at all on how you consume the experience of using energy. If you turn the light switch on, the same electrons flow down the same cable and the same light bulb lights up, irrespective of whether the energy is supplied by one company or another company. It is a commodity. And because it's perceived as a commodity and substantively it is one, people underinvest in the procurement process. And because people underinvest in the procurement process, Vendors take advantage of households. And the, the kicker is when you dig into how much vendors take advantage cumulatively across energy, mortgage, insurance, products, and so on, for a typical UK household and the median household income, it's about £1,000 a year of overspend. Now, £1,000 a year for each of 30 million UK households is just an enormous amount of money. And that amount of money should be consumer surplus. Currently, it is producer surplus. So we look at that and say, well, how do we fix that? And clearly, the current market structure militates against the solution. Because the current market structure is I, as a householder, want to get cheaper energy. I go to a site, I search for cheaper energy, and I get cheaper energy. But the supplier of the intermediary who, who intermediates between me and the energy companies isn't working for me as a household, it's working for the energy company. The deal they are promoting is the one that they get paid the highest level of commission on. And moreover, it nat naturally equilibrates with a high-low pricing model in the market, where I am lured into switching my supply to a low-price deal, and the supplier will walk me to high pricing over the next two to three years. And so as a result, unless I am hyper-vigilant as a consumer, I'm going to end up getting screwed. And that's what happens. Consumers get screwed. And the consumer groups that get most screwed are the ones who have the least money and often the ones who are least financially literate or sophisticated. They're the ones who are the busiest. So often parents with two young kids and a car and a dog, they don't have time to deal with this stuff. And so they get screwed. And that's not fair. And it's not right. And it's solvable. Well, that, that's, that's the way... That's the way that it always happens. And they obviously, you know, like you were saying, you know, definitely doing something that has an impact. You know, you were alluding to that, you know, earlier. You know, I think that, you know, I'm sure that now, you know, obviously the, the second time around, you know, you guys have also, you know, raised some money uh, from, from outside investors. I guess that, you know, imagine if I was to put you into a time machine and you were able to go back in time, Greg. You go back in time to that moment where you're perhaps still at Index. 
and you're wondering what to do. You know, you're one, you know that you want to start a company, but you know, you're wondering, you know, what, what's that going to be? If you had the opportunity of going back in time and giving that younger Greg one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Well, am I advising myself as an early investor or am I advising myself as a student? I mean, I'd go even further back. In a sense, it was my anxiety and my lack of self-confidence that inhibited my doing this when I was in my early 20s. I mean, the key thing is life gets really expensive really fast. And if you don't jump and take those risks early, you know, it doesn't get easier. Now, the nature of the kind of business challenge you might seek to solve as you become more senior changes. I couldn't have started one fine stay in my early 20s. I wouldn't have tried to. It was a stretch even in my, uh, as I turned 30. I wouldn't have been able to conceive of how to start a business like Nouse until I had a bunch more experience, right? It's a very, very complex, ambitious business, which is a multi-category managed service with a ton of kind of regulatory and, and technological and product complexity. Even now, it's a stretch, but I feel like now I'm ready for this class of challenge. But you're, the, the problem you will try to solve you know, will find you. The important thing is the temperament and the attitude. So if I could advise myself, it would be just get off your ass and take a risk. I love that. I love that. The problem will find you. I love that, Greg. Now, for the people that are listening, you know, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? I'm Greg at nous.co, N-O-U-S.co. I am always interested to chat, especially to folks who are thinking about building their own businesses. I'd love to say I do a lot of Asian investing. I have done at the moment. I just don't have capacity because I am spending 80 hours a week on the main thing. But um, yeah, look, I mean, 2023 is going to be a huge year for us as a business. We're going to be doubling in size. We've got this kind of great early product market traction and some tremendous early signal from market. So it's exciting, but uh, it's a lot of work. I love it. Well, Greg, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Alejandro, for the good questions. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.